If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Thursday, August 19th, 2021. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, around the clock, on demand for free on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. We are broadcasting live from New York City and the worldwide headquarters of Fox News. Excited to be here, excited to fill in tonight for Kennedy on the TV side. That's 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network. Hope to see you there. You can tune in live or set your DVR. On today's show, we'll get to our first guest in just a moment. Later, Dr. Mark Siegel on booster shots and more. And in our final hour, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin and a combat veteran. He will be here. Fox News alert as we get going. Let's bring you stats. Coronavirus cases cumulatively in the United States officially 37.2 million, a vast undercount. The death toll in the United States from COVID, 624,365. The Dow is down 49 points at this hour to 34,911. Let's get right to our first guest on the program. He is U.S. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska. He joins me now. Senator, good to have you. Hey, Guy. Thanks for the invite. I would like to play for you an exchange on ABC News last night between the anchor George Stephanopoulos and the president of the United States, Joe Biden, addressing what is happening right now on the ground in Afghanistan. I could hardly believe my ears yesterday when we played this on the show. I still can't quite believe it. Cut one. Listen. So you don't think this could have been handled? This actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look, but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happened. So for you, that was always priced into the decision? Yes. This is the best we can do, says the president of the United States. What do you say? Well, it's just stunningly disconnected from reality. Um, obviously, the president's team continues to urge him to treat it like a PR crisis instead of the ongoing nation-defining security crisis it actually is. Obviously, that's an unsustainable position. I don't care about the politics of all this, but they're going to regret all that for political reasons just because of how stupidly absurd it is. But here's what's actually happening on the ground over there. What's happening on the ground over there is that the French are doing gun runs to try to get their people out. The French are kicking more ass to get their people out of the country and out of harm's way than we are. The Think Brits, about too. That. 
uh, the, the Brits and the Americans, I, I don't, because I serve on the intelligence committee, I don't want to cross any lines here, um, but the Brits are incredibly frustrated with America uh, and for reasons that are very, very understandable. I, I, don't, I don't think the American people understand the peril that Joe Biden has put us in. This Karzai airport has a single runway right now. That means that a single Taliban fighter with an RPG can turn this into a legitimate hostage situation by downing a plane on the tarmac. We need to expand the perimeter right now. And you have military leaders trying to be faithful uh, to their commander in chief, but not fighting him nearly hard enough. The, the bunker silo that the White House staff has tried to put the president in and keep him from hearing the military advice that he needs right now has the military talking as if we lack the capacity to expand the perimeter. Oh, I mean, they're what saying we lack is the will. Yeah, they're saying it outright. In fact, let's play it. It cuts 16. And again, we'll juxtapose what you just said about the French government, what they're doing. We won't make you comment on what the Brits are doing, but there are reports that they are sending teams out like the French to make sure that their people are brought in safely. What about the United States? Well, the defense secretary yesterday said this. I mean, you're still saying you're focused on the airfield. These people can't get into the airfield. Well, we're going to do everything we can to uh, continue to try to uh, deconflict and and create uh, uh, passageways for them to get to the airfield. I don't have the capability to go out and and extend operations currently into uh, into. Uh, Kabul. And, and where do you take that? I mean, how far can you extend into Kabul, you know, and, uh, and, and how long does it take to flow those forces in to be able to do that? He says that this is the defense secretary of the United States of America saying that we don't have the capacity to go out and do what the French are currently doing, as you point out, Senator. That is their answer. We don't have the capacity to do it, which I think on its face is completely ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous. It's a false statement. Uh, We need military leaders to stop acting like politicians and to tell the truth and then let political officials who are elected be held accountable for the policy choices they make. But to to claim that we don't have the capacity is simply not true. And the moral imperative in this moment, when we've got uh, thousands and thousands of Americans still well beyond the airport, well beyond the wire, who can't get there, and we have an administration, we have a State Department sending notice out to Americans in Kabul saying we cannot guarantee your safety getting here, but the Taliban has said you'll be getting free access to the airport. Trusting the Taliban uh, to get access to the airport is like trusting Hitler to give access to the beaches of Dunkirk. This is insane, and the American military needs to be directed. They need to be given the power and the authority to either expand the perimeter around Karzai Airport right now, past these, past and through these Taliban checkpoints that are keeping people from being able to get to the airport, or we need to retake Bagram Air Force Base. This is one of the great blunders in all of U.S. history, that this administration directed us to abandon the airfield that was secure and that provided the support, not just for this evacuation. Obviously, I'm strongly against this decision to withdraw, but the debate we're having here is not about the decision to withdraw. We're talking about the just completely incompetent execution of this that has put at risk 
thousands and thousands of Americans and 60 to 80,000 of our Afghan allies who are not abstract people. These are individual humans and families and moms and dads that are at the wire at the airport with children at their knees. And they came to that airport because we guaranteed their security because they fought alongside us against a common enemy. These people are at that airport because we promised we would never just cut and run. I'm hearing from U.S. troops constantly who fought over the last 20 years in Afghanistan, and they're saying, I gave my word on behalf of the United States government and people because my commanders said we would never just bail on these people. These interpreters, these drivers, these co-belligerents who fought alongside us, they were helping us take the battle against the Taliban and al-Qaeda from Manhattan to the battlefields where these people were given a safe haven to plan these kinds of attacks. We owe it to these people to keep our word. And right now we have a commander in chief who thinks he's dealing with a couple of media cycles and that this will just go away in two weeks. This is about how a superpower ceases to be a superpower in the eyes of the world by having no moral coherence about what we're doing and the pledges we've made. What is the commander-in-chief up to? I mean, I don't want to make this too political here, but he is the commander-in-chief. He was elected talking about all of his experience in foreign policy. He's been largely MIA in terms of answering questions. He's taken a few questions from one journalist. That's it. He's run away from other questions multiple times. When he deigns to make these brief appearances to read off of a teleprompter, then he goes back. There are reports he's going to go back to Delaware for the long weekend, he just was on vacation or whatever he was doing in Camp David. The administration admitted that until, what, the day before yesterday, he had not spoken to a single world leader over the course of five or six days while this was all transpiring. The British press is reporting that Boris Johnson was trying to get him on the phone for a day and a half and couldn't. I mean, what is he doing? What is he doing? I I can't make sense of what is motivating the president and his core team right now. They knew the risk without talking about classified assessments. I can simply tell you that for months, not just Republicans, but Republicans and Democrats on the Senate Intelligence Committee have been worried about an outcome like this. The administration officials tried to repeatedly tell us things that are at odds with a lot of um, intelligence assessments we were getting, which they were saying there's no chance that Taliban mounts an, uh, an offensive on Kabul before the winter. The winter will pause the fighting season, and they admit the administration talked as if the only way you'd ever have a big Taliban offensive was next spring. And we said, we don't understand where you're getting this idea and this certainty, but even if you believe that, what is your contingency plan? And they have repe- they repeatedly told us for months that they had a contingency plan, and what seems to be clear now is that there was some sort of insular group think that because the president was so sure of this, because he was rejecting the advice of military commanders who wanted to leave a few thousand folks there so we could continue to provide the air cover that was necessary for the intelligence gathering and the special forces operations we were doing on the ground to decapitate terror organizations. Everyone said, well, the president's made up his mind, so this is the future. And it appears like there were no adults in the room. But there and here's what's so confusing to me, Senator, because President Biden in that interview on ABC also said that he was not being advised to keep 25 troops, 2,500 troops on the ground, which I know that's been widely reported that that advice did come to him. He's saying he doesn't recall that. And he's also saying 
Well, we plan for every contingency. They keep saying that. They keep repeating that line, which I think is just an unbelievably damning self-own. Like, if they, if they planned for this, that is almost worse. But at the same time, at you know, in the next breath, they say, but we didn't foresee this unraveling this quickly, and no one did. And, and the intelligence didn't show that. It sounds like you're saying that that is false, Let's distinguish between the um, after-action assessments that are going to be required in the future. I'll say something brief about that, but okay. then I want to get back to the, what needs to be done in this moment. There will clearly be State Department versus State Department, defense versus defense, intelligence community versus intelligence community, NSC versus wider White House staff, politicals versus careers, as people run away from this, because lots of people tried to warn the administration that this politically driven sort of um, mission accomplished moment of saying August 30th or pre-September 11th, the 20th anniversary, he's going to have brought all the boys home stuff, was disconnected from conditions on the ground. And lots of people were telling the administration that this was a very bad idea. And many of those people were inside the administration. Now, they're going to try to equivocate and say, well, because of the decisions that were made and the deal that had been cut with the Taliban in the last administration, and let's be clear, I was against that deal. I was against the last administration negotiating with the Taliban. But this is enough of Joe Biden just constantly making excuses for every bad decision his administration has made by blaming the Afghan people, many Afghan fighters who fought alongside us, the previous administration. He'll blame everybody but the people who made the decisions and the Taliban. The Taliban seems to be the only group that he's unwilling to criticize. Well, because we're sort of at their mercy right now, right? They're not he doesn't want to rankle them too much because. This could get a lot uglier if they decide to start shooting and blowing things up with Americans in their crosshairs, which they might. Right? I mean, it's just it's such a groveling, right. pitiful thing to watch. The president of the United States trying to avoid insulting a terrorist group that's taken over a country based on abject incompetence that they're now lying to cover up. Last question, Senator, before you go. This is less important than the human beings component of this. But, you know, moving into the future. And terrorism, I mean, this could affect lives, of course, as well. Reports everywhere of the Taliban seizing tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars worth of American weapons and equipment, airplanes, Humvees, uh, you know, guns, drones, uh, helicopters. I've heard some people sort of snarking, oh, well, good luck trying to fly those things. First of all, I don't know what their capacity will be now or in the future. I'm also worried about the Chinese or the Russians coming in and paying them to say, hey, give us that American technology. We want to buy it from you. Here's the cash. And now they have our technology that they can go and figure out how we operate, which becomes a national security concern unto itself. I mean, again, they say they plan for every contingency. Well, the reality on that front is highly disturbing. Yeah, so we've got five major problems around the world, and on all five of them, on both the realist and the idealist dimension, America is weaker now than we were two weeks ago. So relative to China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and a grab bag of jihadis that now have a recruiting hive um, on the alleged you know, graveyard of superpowers uh, in Afghanistan. So jihadis, North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, on all five dimensions, we are weakened 
objectively, and we are weakened in terms of our ability to persuade people that they want to be on the side of the United States going forward. A great nation, and surely a great nation that believes in the universal dignity of not just all 330 million Americans, but 7.8 billion people on God's earth. If you believe in universal human dignity, you want to attract allies to your side because you have a vision for how, when you make your commitments, you go slow before you make a commitment, but if you draw a red line, you keep your word. And right now, all over the world, Chinese embassies are telling people, um, our friends and people who are across the line, maybe a little closer to uh, oppositional forces, they're saying, why would you ever recognize Taiwan? Because this is how the United States treats its allies. Our commander-in-chief needs to come out and address the American people and address the world about what his plan is to make sure we keep our word to the Americans that are still in Kabul and beyond and to our closest allies who've risked their safety on our behalf. Well, he hasn't done it. He hasn't come close to it. Uh, But on that very sunny note, Senator, we've got to let you go. We're up on a break. We appreciate your time. We share your frustration and anger uh, is what I sense in your voice. But I think it's righteous and well-deserved. And it's it's regrettable to say that. Senator Ben Sass, Republican, Nebraska, a member of the Intelligence Committee, among others in the Senate. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Guy. Appreciate the time. We'll be right back. Guy Benson. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, and I want to reiterate my admiration for CNN correspondent Clarissa Ward, who's on the ground in Kabul. And it's been pretty dicey and hairy for her and her crew a few different times. She's also just telling it like it is. Here is her dispatch earlier today on CNN, Cut 28. The lack of clear information. The rumor mill is in overdrive. There's hysteria. You have Taliban fighters with whips, with guns. You have U.S. and U.K. soldiers who are not allowing people in. You have mixed messaging coming through about what kind of paperwork you need and how you can get on a flight and where you can go. I mean, it is just an absolute mess. And we heard President Biden say yesterday in his uh, comments to ABC, news that this is not a failure. And I think a lot of people outside that airport, particularly those taking the kinds of extreme actions we're just talking about, would like to know if this isn't failure, what does failure look like exactly? Brutal. A brutal assessment because it's true. Total chaos, absolute mess, extremely dangerous. And the brain trust In the Biden administration, they tell us we plan for every contingency. And the president of the United States tells us to ignore everything that we are seeing and reading and watching and hearing. This is the best that he could have done. This could not have gone any better than it is. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. If this isn't a failure, what does failure look like? That's the question posed by a CNN correspondent in Kabul witnessing it firsthand. We'll be right back. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. GuyBensonShow.com As we continue here on this Thursday, I'm Guy Benson in New York. Yesterday we got some of the preview clips of the Stephanopoulos ABC News interview with the president. President finally, for the first time in a week, amid this catastrophe, he finally answered questions. A few of them from George Stephanopoulos. Having walked away from reporters on multiple occasions, refusing to take questions. So we played a few of the sound bites as we got them, including the one that we played for Senator Sass. Biden basically saying, yep, this is the best we could have done. It couldn't have done, couldn't have gone better. Couldn't have avoided this. I don't think anyone believes that. I'll ask Congressman Gallagher about the same soundbite later in the show. We also played the clip where Biden seemed irritable. He was peeved that Stephanopoulos talked about airplanes packed with people, people clinging to the planes, falling to their deaths. And Biden goes, oh, that was four days ago. That was five days ago. Point of fact, it was two days prior. That was Monday. I know the days all blend together when you're on vacation. But it was two days ago at the time, and no one had asked him about it because he hadn't answered a single question. But he was annoyed by that question. There were a few other exchanges that we didn't get to because we didn't have it yet. It aired later. And some of it aired this morning on Good Morning America. I want to play two of those sound bites for you just to make a few points and a few fact checks, starting with cut eight. Listen here. I had a simple choice. If I had said we're going to stay, then we better be prepared to put a whole hell of a lot more troops but in. But your top military advisors warned against withdrawing on this timeline. They wanted you to keep about 2,500 troops. No, they didn't. It was split. That, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. They didn't tell you that they wanted troops to stay? No, not, at, not in terms of whether we were going to get out in a time frame all troops. They didn't argue against that. So no one, no one told your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should just keep 2,500 troops. It's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. So two reactions to that. Number one, Biden starts the clip by trying to, again, reframe this as a debate about whether or not to get out. And as Senator Sass told us at the start of the show, he was against the withdrawal. Sass was. A lot of Americans are against withdrawal. A lot of Americans are for the withdrawal. Polls showed that most Americans are for the withdrawal. The current debacle is about how the withdrawal happened. 
Biden keeps saying, well, you know, this was the debate and I decided we're once you decide you have to do it in a way that is correct, that keeps your promises, that keeps your people safe. None of that is happening. So, again, this deflection, they keep doing this. And then he just straight up denied that his advisors were saying to keep a small residual force on the ground, which is what had been the case. We had 2,500 people there. We had 2,500 troops there. Zero combat fatalities of Americans for a year and a half. But we were at least giving enough support to the Afghans and their military and their government that the terrorist group didn't take over the whole country. So there were absolutely people arguing to keep that residual force in place, to keep the stability. And Biden is pretending like it never happened. No one argued that to him. He said, no one said that to me that I can recall, which might be part of the problem here. Because it has been widely reported that this was the advice of a number of generals and the secretary of defense. Like, it's not really disputed that this advice was given to him. He can say, it was given to me by some, and I rejected it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no one said that to me that I can recall. I mean, it, there were many journalists who covered this stuff closely when he said that, who were like, what is he talking about? This is an indisputable fact that he is now just dismissing. And whether he does not remember the debate, whether he is lying about the debate. I don't know what's happening, but I'll just sort of repeat rhetorically my question. What is going on with Joe Biden? What is the president of the United States doing? And I'm not surprised that they're not having him answer more questions because this was like a relatively controlled environment with one journalist that he has a rapport with who in fact is in the past a rapid response partisan for Joe Biden's party, literally. Right, George Stephanopoulos in the Clinton White House was trying to make sure that his president was ready for tough questions and to go and you know punch back at opposition, right, and the opponents to the White House. That's what Stephanopoulos did in his previous career. He was a Democratic, bare knuckles, you know, rapid response operative. That's what he did. Now, he's made a career pivot, not going to turn this into a whole thing about George Stephanopoulos. He asked some fair and tough questions here. Biden did not do well. He did not do well. And I understand why the chief of staff or whoever is making these calls circle back, whoever's deciding what they're going to do and not do. I'm not surprised, given what we've seen these other officials just floundering under questioning because there are no good answers, obviously. You couple that with this interview and the way Biden sometimes does when he's being peppered with questions, he gets angry and irritable. They're like, no, we're just not going to do it. We'll take a few questions here and then back to the bunker. We'll go back to the basement and figure out what's next. He's spoken to two world leaders in the last 10 days total. And that was after they had to admit that he had spoken to zero. And people were like, what the hell? Like, all right, get uh, get Boris and Angela lined up. We got to get him on the phone with someone. What is he doing? 
And now he's just denying that he can even remember something that has been widely reported about one of the obvious scenarios that was unquestionably put in front of him as, as an option. He's pretending it was never put in front of him as an option. I, I don't know what to say about that. Aside from he's either lying deliberately or there is another problem here. Then there's this going to the threat of terrorism metastasizing again in the future in Afghanistan as a jumping off point or this haven, which is what led to 9-11. I'm going to play part of this exchange. There's one line that jumped out at people. Cut 11. Listen. Most intelligence analysis has predicted that al-Qaeda would come back 18 to 24 months after a withdrawal of American troops. Is that analysis now being revised? Could it be sooner? It could be. But George, look, here's the deal. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they metastasize. There's a significantly greater threat to the United States from Syria. There's a significantly greater threat from East Africa. There's a significantly greater threat to other places in the world than it is from the mountains of Afghanistan. And we have maintained the ability to have an over-the-horizon capability to take them out. We don't have a military in Syria to make okay, sure that we're... Okay, that's it right there. So, he says, look, this is what happens. Al-Qaeda and ISIS, they metastasize. Well, yeah, that happens, and they often go to a power vacuum, which is where they metastasize. It happened in Iraq after the stupid Obama drawdown there, where they did it in a bad way, too fast, and then ISIS came in. And then we had to go back to destroy ISIS. Joe Biden was not off on a yacht somewhere during that. He was the vice president of the United States during that. So he should know some things about withdrawing too precipitously without a great plan and power vacuums occurring and what can happen because that's literally what happened not long ago with ISIS. But then he says, well, look, there's other places in the world that have all, you know, big threats to us, more so than Afghanistan, I would say for now. And he cites Syria as an example, quote, we don't have military in Syria. And you had a bunch of Pentagon correspondents and other experts immediately on social media saying, yes, we do. We have almost a thousand Americans on the ground. There are boots on the ground, not a few hundred, not a few dozen, not covert that we don't know about. Like it is a known thing that we have close to a thousand American troops in Syria. And part of Biden's answer there to downplay the threat of terrorism is to say that we don't have military in Syria, but we do. And look, we all make mistakes. People misspeak. Sometimes you're asked to go on television to talk about something. You don't know all the intricacies. As a pundit, I know that. I'm also not commander-in-chief of the United States of America, who gets a security briefing every freaking day. And if you're going to say that we don't have troops somewhere as a point defending the calamity that you're presiding over, and you are wrong about that, and you are the president, i.e. commander-in-chief— also seems like a problem to me. I repeat, no wonder they don't want this guy answering questions. Where the hell is Kamala, by the way? Where is she? They gave her the border. I wonder, are they going to give her Kabul airport? Like, well, my vice president, I can think of no one more qualified. This is what he always says when he hands stuff off to her because she's not qualified and bad. I can think of no one more qualified than my vice president to deal with the crisis at the border. 
Uh, she was not qualified at all to deal with it, and it has been a disaster. I feel like, oh, let's give her a cobble, the evacuation stuff. I might somehow feel a little bit better, even though I would not feel better at all. It's not good. Senator Sass mentioned in our interview that the Brits are livid. They have good reason to be livid. There are reports that we were just not giving them any information, kept them in the dark, and they're affected by our decisions. There was a speech given in the House of Commons this week from an Afghanistan war veteran who's now a member of parliament. I want you to hear part of it and some extraordinary developments from across the pond related to all of this. That's straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Back on the Guy Benson Show, talked about the fury in Westminster. Our British cousins, our closest allies, enraged with the United States and the Biden administration because of, it sounds like, some really serious betrayals, lack of communication, hanging them out to dry. And members of parliament stood up and spoke, and they spoke with one voice. You couldn't tell the difference between labor and conservative. They were just going off on Biden. The British Parliament. One MP who's a member of the Conservative Party. He served in Afghanistan. Tom Tugginhot. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. He said, like many veterans, he's been struggling this week with anger, grief, rage, and the feeling of abandonment. And abandonment also of the sacrifice that my friends made. And he started talking about allies. And this is when he had some words for the United States and for our president, cut 24. And so it is with great sadness that I now criticize one of them. Because I was never prouder than when I was decorated by the 82nd Airborne after the capture of Musakala. It was a huge privilege, a huge privilege to be recognized by such an extraordinary unit in combat. To see their commander in chief call into question the courage of men I fought with, to claim that they ran, it's shameful. Those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have. And a loud hear, hear from the men and women in the House of Commons. Those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have, he's talking about Joe Biden. He's talking about our president and the elected government, the representatives of our closest allies in unison agree with him and are affirming that sentiment. He goes on and cut 25. Now, this is a harsh lesson for all of us. And if we're not careful... It could be a very, very difficult lesson for our allies, but it doesn't need to be. We can set out a vision, clearly articulated, 
for reinvigorating our European NATO partners to make sure that we are not dependent on a single ally, on the decision of a single leader, but that we can work together with Japan and Australia, with France and Germany, with partners large and small, and make sure that we hold the line together. He says he wants to make sure that the UK is, quote, not dependent on a single ally. And he is talking about us. And the decision of a single leader, he's talking about our president. As an American, I would often, I think, feel pretty defensive to see any American president criticized this way in such a sustained and brutal, searing way in the House of Commons, Republican or Democrat. And they went after Trump sometimes, and it's hard to sit here and listen to him and say that he's wrong. The Daily Telegraph in London had this headline, front page headline today. Again, it's just um, it's just amazing. Parliament holds the president in contempt. That is the headline on the front page of the Daily Telegraph in London. Subheadline, on the day when Westminster found its full voice again, MPs and peers unite to condemn the, quote, dishonor of Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan and his criticism of the troops he left behind to face the Taliban. Politico has a story, came out two or three days ago now, talking about the disbelief and betrayal across Europe where European leaders are sounding off, talking to journalists, giving quotes, talking amongst themselves, stunned at what the United States has done, the decisions that Joe Biden has made, the way that they have been carried out, the absolute incompetence. Apparently, a lot of these leaders were, for some reason, laboring under the illusion that Joe Biden was a foreign policy expert and genius. Unfortunately, he is the opposite and has proven it over and over again. But I guess if you're around long enough, even if you get almost everything wrong, you're an expert. And when you're in the Senate for a thousand years, then you're vice president for eight years. It's just, oh, expert. When Obama picked Biden, I remember all the experts on TV said, well, he's a foreign policy expert. He brings gravitas to this tick. Can you imagine believing that Joe Biden brings gravitas? Anyway, they thought he was an expert. This is his first big foreign policy call with the big domestic issue being immigration, of course, and that crisis. And they can't believe it. Disbelief and betrayal. Fury in London. And I'll remind you that Joe Biden, having won the election, declared to the world, to the international community in Cut 31. America is back. Right? This is the presumptuousness of the Democrats and Joe Biden. We're back, baby. America is back from those awful Trump years. And now what? A few months in, you've got London... Brussels, and a bunch of European capitals seething. Heck of a job, Joe. 
Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, online at GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes down 66 points for the day. It finished at 34,894. Well, we've been talking a bit about booster shots. Right, a third vaccine shot for Americans, which is a controversial new proposal and guidance from the Biden administration. I am not reflexively opposed to it. I also want to know more before I go out and just two thumbs up endorse the idea that everyone who's fully vaccinated needs to go get a third shot. As we talked to Dr. Manny yesterday, I'm not sure we have a great answer on how this applies to people who, for example, have natural immunity or have vaccine plus natural immunity, which is what I have. Or someone who's simply double vaxxed, never got COVID, but is young or on the younger side and relatively healthy. Do we need to be talking about third shots for tens of millions of people who fall into, in this country alone, a few of those categories. I don't know. And I'm not just immediately going to say, oh, well, the Biden administration says we need the third shot. I understand that in Israel, especially for elderly people who got their second shot of immunity many months ago, it's starting to wear off a little bit in terms of infections and in some cases, severe cases or hospitalizations. And they instituted last month a policy of third shots, third shots of the Pfizer, for their senior citizens and their immunocompromised people in that country. And the results have been good, right? So that's encouraging. Again, I am not someone who's like knee-jerk against this. But I think that there are fair questions to be asked about it. Does it, should it apply to everyone? Now, there's also this point that I want to make sure that I drive home. Because even though I myself had a breakthrough COVID case, which I've talked about on the air before, I was very transparent about it. We went into isolation. I I think I played it by the book. I tried to. It was a very mild, very brief breakthrough case, which is what they generally are when you're fully vaccinated. The number of breakthrough cases, i.e. cases among fully vaccinated people of COVID who then experience symptoms so bad that they have to go to the hospital, it is like a microscopic number. We have 166, roughly 166 million fully vaccinated Americans, less than 6,000 
have had a breakthrough case that sent them to the hospital. That is statistically just tiny. These vaccines work incredibly well against infection, less so now with Delta, it seems, but still exceptionally well against severe cases and death. Now, how does the booster shot conversation play into that? We'll ask our next guest. I just wanted to make sure that you still, I don't want to like back away from any of my confidence in the vaccines because the numbers speak for themselves, including when you look at people who are in hospitals, who are in ICU beds, who are on ventilators and who are dying tragically from this disease overwhelmingly, almost exclusively, they are unvaccinated, which is unto itself its own hugely significant data point as we are thinking through the efficacy of the vaccines. And by the way, I think a lot more people are starting to get the message. We had a million shots in the United States yesterday, I believe. Hasn't been that high in months. 500,000 roughly newly vaccinated people a day. The clip is picking up because these surges are real and the hospital bed shortages are real and people are seeing it, hearing about it in their communities and saying, okay, I really don't want that to happen. It's time to get the shot. And I hope that you'll think about that and consider it. And it's not just in Alabama or Florida or some of the places that the media talks about. It's also in some blue states that the media tends to talk a bit less about. And we can address that perhaps more later on. Let's get now to Dr. Mark Siegel. He's author of the book COVID, The Politics of Fear and the Power of Science. He's Fox News medical correspondent, and you can follow him on Twitter at D-R-M-A-R-C-S-I-E-G-E-L, at Dr. Mark Siegel. And doctor, it's good to have you back. Well, I have to first start by saying I've been watching you on TV lately, listening very carefully to your radio show, and I can attest via the radio airwaves that you have had no cognitive difficulty whatsoever as a result of the mild case of COVID, and I'm not surprised. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Sometimes I wonder. That's a joke. Uh, But, doctor, I do want to ask you, because everyone's now talking about the booster shot question. And part of me is frustrated because we're still trying to get the first shot question settled for a lot of people. And now we're already off to like, you know, third shots for everyone. I understand that immunocompromised people and elderly people, if the protection starts to wear off a little bit, even even, you know, marginally, it might make sense to get them topped up or extra protected as someone who's double vaxxed and had covid I have to say I'm a little bit hesitant to just immediately gung-ho rush into a third shot. I'm just wondering how you're thinking about this. Let me back into this by starting where I I did with uh, Brian Kilmey this morning on Fox & Friends, which is let's look at the fact that um, there's uh, that 60% of the recent hospitalizations in Israel uh, are vaccinated patients. um, And Israel is a month or two ahead of us. And before you say, aha, that's the proof we need, that's the smoking gun, uh, it's not because so many people in Israel are vaccinated. And the question that Brian asked me, it's about 80% over the age of 12. Brian asked me, and how do you know the booster would have prevented that? That's the key question. So we, A, we don't have proof that the booster will prevent serious infection. B, we know that the shot itself does decrease serious 
and, and life-threatening infection and hospitalizations dramatically. The real target here that we actually have proven and shown, Guy, is that over several months, we all believe now that your ability to prevent mild infection diminishes with both the Pfizer and the Moderna shot, probably more so with the Pfizer shot, although I was very interested to hear Tony Fauci, of all people, say the other day he's not con- convinced of that. I thought he would, he would love that because that Moderna was developed in, in, keep in coordination with the NIH. But the point is that both of these vaccines over several months seem to decrease the ability to, to prevent mild infection. And that's where the booster is coming from. But, and here's the real answer to your question, I'm winding up to the real answer, which is I'm mostly concerned about people in nursing homes. I'm mostly concerned about people at great risk for serious outcomes. I'm concerned about my brethren, healthcare workers, who are encountering COVID patients all the time. So mm-hmm. I think the administration got way ahead of its skis here because the idea of of targeting first nursing home, uh, nursing home people in nursing homes, people working in nursing homes, and healthcare workers makes an enormous sense because we're already seeing an uptick in cases and even serious infections in nursing homes. That's as far as we need to go right now. You know why? That's the group that got the vaccine the first. Right. And already the most vulnerable. That's why they got it first. So, like, it, it makes exactly. it makes all the sense in the world to me to prioritize those people and then maybe reassess with more data down the line. Do younger, healthier people who are double vaxxed, do they really need to get a booster shot or are they going to get basically a cold if they contract covid at some point? Right. Which is which is what I had. And, and then the second part of this. And I asked Dr. Manny about it as well. And it seems like we're still waiting to get more good data on this, but in my circumstance where I have two Moderna shots in my body and COVID antibodies from the disease itself, because I had that very mild, quick breakthrough case, does that count as my booster shot? Like, does getting COVID count as my booster shot, or do I still have to go get a third shot? So that's a really, really, really interesting question. And I'm going to give you an answer on natural immunity you haven't heard before, because I've been studying this and talking to top experts around the country on this. Natural immunity, when you get over COVID, you make a lot of antibodies to different parts of the virus that you're not getting with the vaccine. And it's pretty good, but it's variable. It it varies from one person to the next. And generally speaking, the more severe case you have, the more antibodies and the more immunity you have. And we can pretty much count on it for six months. I believe, and and so does Dr. Mark Posnanski up at Harvard, who's their head of vaccinology at MGH, believe that it's COVID plus one, meaning that one vaccine dose plus COVID gives you a really durable immunity. But I would... I would like even better what you've had, which is two shots plus COVID against the Delta variant, because the Delta variant's more problematic, spreads more easily. Well, that's what I got. A little bit more resistant. Yeah, I got Delta. Bit, I know, I know, I know yeah. that's what you got. And I'm saying you're good. You're you're as good as gold. And to prove that <laughs> that I put my money where my mouth is, guy, I have to tell you, my parents are in their mid 90s. You might even recall last year I talked about my father being saved with the help of hydroxychloroquine yeah, on the air on, on Tucker. But, but um, look, they've both had COVID plus two, and I don't worry about them even though they're in the mid-90s. So the direct answer to your question is having had COVID definitely boosts your immunity. And does that mean, whatever, eight months after, you know, I haven't done the math, but eight months after May when I got my second shot, 
I don't have to rush out and get a third shot? Because I'm not just talking about myself. There are millions of people who are COVID plus one or COVID, I'd say even more, who are COVID plus two, to use the terminology here. I think my answer is going to be, and you'll have to. I have to say, it's a moving target we're shooting at. That's fair. I'm going to guess. I'm going to suspect that I'm going to want my parents to get that booster, but not you. Okay. I mean that that, that would be rational. And again, I am open to data. I will be asking you and other doctors the same question when that time arrives in the fall or whatever it's going to be. Uh, but at this exact moment. I don't have a burning desire to go get my booster shot for reasons that we've just talked about. I want to also ask you this, doctor, and this is more of a philosophical and moral question. You guys take in your profession the Hippocratic Oath, which is is not bound by borders or national sovereignty. There's a debate right now about whether or not it is morally or ethically correct for countries, wealthy countries in the West, like the UK, the United States, Israel to be giving their people and I'd say in the United States where they're saying oh yeah everyone's going to get it to be giving a third shot to citizens in these types of countries where there are what probably billions of people who have still no immunity and are still waiting for their first shot is from a doctor's perspective I mean I, I can see the argument on both sides where do you come down on that? Well, you know, and uh, we were talking about that on Fox and Friends, too, this morning. I'll tell you where I really come down on that. I think we can walk into bubblegum at the same time. I think we, shoot, we proved that with PEPFAR against HIV-AIDS. I think we can be the world leader in really doing a much better job. I'm actually surprised, because I know the CEO of Gavi, the, the vaccine alliance that's involved with this, and the World Health Organization has been a dismal failure from the beginning to the end of the pandemic, first not warning us, and now with COVAX not getting vaccines out. I mean, we need you know, over 5 billion doses around the world. And we have enormous under under amount of countries under vaccinated. Africa, literally less than 5%. India, which is a big vaccine manufacturer, like 15%. I mean, we need that. But we're, the United States cannot be the supplier for the world. We, we've sent out about 110 million doses. And notice I said 5 to 10 billion. So mm-hmm. we we should be involved in trying to figure this out, but the notion that we should be given the vaccines that we could be using as boosters here to the rest of the world and that would solve the problem is too linear. It's all about where we're going to make vaccines, should we keep the vaccine patents in place? Can we get these vaccines made generically? We need to help the world organize vaccine production. That makes sense. Not simply give away our doses. Yeah, and we also did a mass of service to the world through Operation Warp Speed and developing the vaccines, right? That's yeah. and not that I'm sitting here being like, oh, everyone should be thanking us constantly. But I mean, that's sort of a, a big deal that was achieved, not exclusively by the United States, but we were sort of driving driving the bus in a lot of ways with some important help from some of our allies as well, the types of countries that are now talking about booster shots, for example. Doctor, we've got to stop there for now, but we will, of course, have you back soon. That's Fox News medical correspondent Dr. Mark Siegel on The Guy Benson Show. Doctor, always enjoy it. And so glad you're doing so well, Guy, and a great pleasure to be on. Thank you. Thank you very much. We will take a quick break. Stepping aside right back. It's a, a quick one. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
Back on the Guy Benson show. Yesterday, President Biden gave that speech, not about Afghanistan, and then walked away with no questions. We listened to some of it live here on the air. One of the lines that he used when he was attacking Republican governors, he seemed much angrier with Republican governors than the Taliban, didn't he? But one of the things he said was this in Cut 38. Some politicians are trying to turn public safety measures, that is children wearing masks in school, into political disputes for their own political gain. Some are even trying to take power away from local educators by banning masks in school. They're setting a dangerous tone. No one is banning masks in schools, which is what the president claimed. I know this is what the third or fourth thing we played from the president today that is just patently false. They have the fact checkers rolling like they love to do in the last administration. No one is talking about banning masks. There's a difference between the government not requiring something and that thing being banned. Right? He's obviously talking about the Ron DeSantis's, Greg Abbott's, Doug Ducey's of the world. DeSantis has said just straight up, if parents want their kids wearing masks, they can wear masks. They're not banned. In fact, school districts that decide that they want to require masks in Florida under the DeSantis rules, they can do that as long as parents have opt outs. That is not a ban. And yet that is misinformation and fear mongering from the president of the United States, which I would be even more upset about if it weren't obviously part of a deflection away from Afghanistan. And I know that I feel like I'm taking the bait by even addressing that partisan COVID speech. He was stirring the pot and going after domestic opposition to try to get us to follow that shiny object. So I guess to some extent I'm doing it just a little bit just to fact check him. There's no ban. And here's the other thing. He keeps talking about masking for children in schools, public safety. This is for the kids. This is for science. As we pointed out yesterday, and I'm going to keep saying over and over again, the UK and the EU, based on their data and their science, have not recommended mask requirements for younger students, 12 and under, in their schools. And they haven't had those requirements. And they're doing fine, even in the UK, with their Delta variant. If you're going to call DeSantis and Abbott, these Republican governors, anti-science, anti-child, then Biden has to say the same thing about Boris Johnson and Macron and Merkel. Is he willing to say that? Does he want to tick off the Europeans and the Brits even more? He should answer that question. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show, halfway through the Thursday edition. In New York, I'm filling in for Kennedy tonight on Fox Business Network. So we spent a lot of time on this show a few months back picking apart the 60 Minutes hit job against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, where they had basically warmed over and reheated an old baseless attack line on DeSantis that he was paying off 
or repaying a political supporter, in this case, the largest, most popular grocery chain in the country, for a modest contribution they had made to him by making the vaccines exclusively available at Publix, that grocery chain. Nothing about the story was true, not one part of it. As a lot of people, including Democrats, attested to, it was debunked, 60 minutes parachuted in months later and decided to try again. And they bungled it horribly. And DeSantis absolutely torched them. And it was actually pretty delightful to watch because I do like a politician who has a healthy contempt for the media. And when it's time to fight back, he or she fights back hard and smart. And DeSantis did that in the 60 Minutes imbroglio. And that's just one example of DeSantis scandals, one after another, that have been sort of thrown into the bloodstream of the U.S. media, all of which have crashed and burned, all of them. They have thrown everything at him. Remember when he was prioritizing seniors for vaccines? They attacked him for that. MSNBC literally had a whole segment and pieces written about how this was him paying off his constituents, old people. Even though, of course, he was doing exactly the right thing. He's ignoring CDC guidance. The guidance finally caught up with his leadership because he was right. Then he was doing a slam dunk, obvious thing with the public's move that had buy-in from all the stakeholders. And they tried to make that into a grift or pay-for-play scandal. There was the entire lie about manipulating the data or undercounting deaths. That's what actually happened in New York, not in Florida. And they had that lunatic woman making that claim. And a lot of people in the media wanted to believe her, and they trotted her out. And it turned out she was, in fact, a compulsive liar and lunatic. But collectively speaking, it couldn't be any more obvious to me that the media, number one, is addicted to hating something and someone, and that would be Donald Trump, who's now gone. So they need to transfer all of that negative energy onto someone else. And DeSantis is their favorite target because they sort of see him as a mini Trump. But I think they also fear him significantly because he is a powerful governor of a crucial battleground state with, I think it's safe to say, presidential aspirations. And he brings in some of what the Trump base loved about Trump with what some non-Trumpy conservatives might prefer. And he might have a greater crossover appeal to people because he does things a little bit differently than Trump. So they have made it a goal from the very beginning of the pandemic to cast everything the guy does as a problem, reckless, deadly, corrupt, you name it. Ron Death Santis, Ron Death Sentence. They have all their stupid hashtags. It's like all these resistance board warriors and journalists. And there's a lot of overlap there. They've decided DeSantis is the guy. Let's take him out. Let's use COVID to do it because he wasn't supposed to win in the first place. They're still pissed off that he did. Ruined their night in 2018. Ruined their narrative. Then he's governed pretty darn well. He built a huge approval rating. COVID hit. They're like, this is our chance. Now there's another wave. And ghoulishly, like a bunch of jackals, they're trying to use anything bad that happens in Florida with this virus to attack him. And it's interesting that the standards don't seem to apply to other leaders and other governors. Like, did you know, for example, while the media is attacking DeSantis and Greg Abbott in Texas, Hawaii has a raging Delta wave right now? Did you know that? I've been hearing a lot about that. If you look at the case trajectories and compare Texas to Hawaii, they are almost identical. 
Hawaiian hospitals are filling up and overflowing. They're setting up triage centers. They have all the mandates, the masks, the distancing, all the things that the left says need to be done. And these Republican governors are killing people by not doing the thing. Those are imposed. Those are in place in Hawaii. And they're still having their big spike. Now, obviously, the higher the vaccination rate is, the lower the death rate will be, which is why people should get vaccinated. But in terms of hospitalizations, especially among unvaccinated people, case counts, there is a bad situation brewing in Hawaii. There's a bad situation brewing in Washington state. It's been awful in Louisiana, but almost all of the criticism has fallen on Texas and Florida. And I don't know, a few of these things are not like the others. What do Florida and Texas have in common? And what do Hawaii, Washington, and Louisiana have in common? The partisan identification of their governors. And you might say, oh, that's awfully simple-minded. There's no way it's, it's quite that clean cut. I would suggest to you that perhaps it is. They want to attack and blame Republicans. They want Republicans to be seen as anti-science and dangerous. And this goes back to our previous discussion about masking in schools. It doesn't matter what the actual science shows or what the data is. We've got DeSantis and Abbott basically following the European model, ironically. Oh, but that's terrible. They're going to get children killed. And then it's just sort of crickets about the blue states, including blue states with all these restrictions in place, having seasonal spikes as well. In any case, that's quite a wind up to the latest Ron DeSantis scandal. There's a new one, ladies and gentlemen, and wait till you hear it. It's a doozy. The man is a menace. Here's the headline from the Associated Press in their tweet. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been criticized for opposing mask mandates, they throw that in there, of course, because they have this obsession with the mask superstition. I'm not saying that masks are useless. I'm saying that for children in schools, there's not great data that it's terribly useful against COVID. But the attachment to masks over other things will become clear in a second here. So I interrupted myself. Let me start this tweet over again. This is the Associated Press. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been criticized for opposing mask mandates, is now touting a COVID-19 antibody treatment in which a top donor's company has invested millions of dollars. DeSantis has been promoting the treatment as virus cases spike. All right, so this has the atmospherics of a scandal, of pay-for-play, of corruption. And the first few sentences very much stoke Those embers. If you just read the headline and maybe a few sentences, which is what most people do, you would come away with the impression something very bad is happening here. And Ron DeSantis is at fault. And I would submit that is the point. That is the reason that they wrote the story. Because when you hear the rest of the story, it'll become clear how much of a non-story it is. And in fact, how DeSantis is good. He is in the right. But these are the first few sentences. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been criticized for opposing mask mandates and vaccine passports, is now touting a COVID-19 antibody treatment in which a top donor's company has invested millions of dollars. DeSantis has been flying around the state promoting Regeneron, a monoclonal antibody treatment that was used on then-President Donald Trump. Ding, just a little bad. Trump's also been mentioned here. After he tested positive for COVID-19. The governor first began talking about it as a treatment last year. Citadel, a Chicago-based hedge fund, has $15.9 million in shares of Regeneron Pharmaceutical, according to filings. Citadel CEO Ken Griffin has donated $10.75 million to a political committee that supports DeSantis. All right, so that's the start of the story. He's running around Florida with this weird treatment, 
that his donor is invested up to his eyeballs in. Here are all the other details. Ready for these? From the story itself, just much further down. It's not unusual for hedge funds to have a wide range of investments. And BlackRock, which has primarily donated to Democratic candidates, has a large holding in the company, more so than Citadel. In fact, Citadel is not in the top 10 shareholders. They're not even in the top 100 shareholders of this company. BlackRock, the Democratic hedge fund, is. Quote, Early treatment with these monoclonal antibodies, Regeneron and others, have proven to radically reduce the chances that someone ends up being hospitalized, DeSantis said Monday. Reducing hospital admissions has got to be a top priority. So that's DeSantis. The AP reports experts agree with him. The drugs, when given within 10 days of initial symptoms, have been shown to cut rates of hospitalization and death by roughly 70%. So let me just stop the presses for a second. The treatment works. It's for people who get COVID, they can take this treatment, and there's a 70% chance if they get it early enough, they'll stay out of the hospital and stay out of the grave. Seems like pretty good goal for the government of Florida or anywhere else. The story quotes Dr. Leanna Wen, who's one of these CNN experts, a lefty doctor. She's endorsing Regeneron, saying, yes, this is a good idea. The story goes on. Citadel's investment in Regeneron is a tiny fraction of its overall $39 billion in investments. Citadel has far greater investments in Materna and Pfizer, which manufacture COVID-19 vaccines. So this company, with this shadowy donor, with all the millions of dollars, they're actually more invested in the vaccines. Did the AP write a big story? Ron DeSantis promotes vaccines with donor invested in Moderna and Pfizer. No, because they're trying to pretend that He hasn't promoted the vaccines, which he has relentlessly. That wouldn't be a scandal. So they're focusing on this much smaller investment in a treatment that works. That is endorsed by, among others, the Biden White House, the Biden White House in a New York Times story. They've got doctors quoted saying that this type of treatment is effective Quote, the Biden administration renewed its call for health providers to use monoclonal antibody treatments. And they quote one of the experts at the White House, who is an advisor on racial equity in health, saying that surge teams need to be deployed to hard hit states to prevent hospitalizations and help save lives. It is literally what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. And it's endorsed by the Biden White House, which did not appear in the AP story, that little detail in the AP story. Because a lot of the people attacking DeSantis for this, I mean, he was getting pummeled on social media. Oh, these are really expensive treatments, whereas the vaccines are free. What a waste of money. He's doing this for his buddy and his donor. May I quote to you this fact from the AP story? The federal government is paying for the monoclonal antibody treatments and patients aren't being charged for the antibody cocktail. The feds have already paid for the treatment. It's already paid for. DeSantis is saying, thank you very much. Let's get it into the bodies of Floridians who have tested positive for COVID to keep them out of the hospital. It costs patients zero dollars, just like the vaccine. The feds have paid for it. Every single argument that people have made against this and attacking DeSantis is just absolute, total false BS. Scott Gottlieb, who ran the FDA, he was asked about Regeneron. 
on CNBC yesterday, I believe it was, because Greg Abbott was receiving Regeneron. Abbott tested positive for COVID. He's fully vaccinated. It's a very light case. And Gottlieb said, yeah, now this is a great drug. It's a great treatment. In fact, we should be doing it more. He said, quote, frankly, I think we are underutilizing this drug on a wide scale basis. So DeSantis is a bad guy because he's what exactly promoting vaccines. He's done pretty darn well at that, by the way. But for the people who aren't getting the vaccines or who are worried once they get COVID anyway, that they might get very sick. He is offering an effective treatment at no cost to his citizens. The horror, the horror. Endorsed by the Biden White House, paid for by federal, not Florida taxpayers in this case. And the investment side of it is meaningless, absolutely meaningless, given all the context of the other investors in this company and the fact that he has the same donors who have invested way more in the vaccines, which no one's saying a peep about because it's such a stupid line of attack. DeSantis, by the way, they're saying, oh, why would you play up Regeneron when you have the vaccines? He has been promoting these vaccines constantly for, what, eight months Florida is 20th out of 50 states on vaccination per capita. That's according to the CDC, the most vaccinated state that voted for Trump in 2020. So within the red state universe, Florida is number one on vaccination rate. They're above average on vaccination rate per capita in the country. DeSantis and his policies and his plans have largely worked. His prioritizing of seniors at the beginning and getting it widely distributed into the most popular chain in the state, those were criticized at the time. It just gets exhausting, one thing after another. And the answer is always he's bad. And you sort of wonder, at what point does the media maybe stop beclowning itself with these idiotic, imbecilic, baseless hit pieces that turn out to sort of be in-kind contributions to Ron DeSantis because he gets to own the media and dump on them because they're so factually deficient. And he's on the right side so clearly on this. Last point, the reporter at the AP who wrote the story, I think the headline in particular, the headline and the lead are what really bother me because the rest of the story basically cancels out the headline and the lead. He was given all of the information that was pertinent to show this was a non-story before the piece was published. And they published anyway. And then Team DeSantis went, kind of nuclear on the reporter who then immediately was claiming victimhood. And all these other journals were like, this is harassment of this journalist. No, do your job well. It's not harassment to point out bad journalism. Some people out there are crazy. They go too far. They make threats. That's indefensible. It is not harassment to hold the media accountable. They feel like they get to hold everyone else accountable, even if they're doing so with garbage BS, but you hold them accountable for their garbage BS? Oh, it's harassment. It's dangerous. It's an attack on the press. And thus, another pile-on against Governor Ron DeSantis has crashed and burned to the point that even his potential Democratic challenger has now endorsed his policy on Regeneron. And curtains. We are done here. Standing ovation, Associated Press. I can't wait till 60 Minutes comes to Florida and blows the lid off of this story in about four months. That'll be fun. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on the Guy Benson Show, I just explained the whole non-scandal involving Ron DeSantis. I want to give him the last word on it because he was asked about it. He defended in one soundbite that we don't have time for his record on vaccinations, which I've outlined. I think it's pretty good. But on Regeneron, here's what he had to say. Cut 41. This has been available for a long time. It's a widely recognized uh, treatment uh, for people that have early stage COVID-19. Again, the state of Florida isn't paying for this. The patients aren't paying for this. This is something that the federal government bought out very early on, um, and it's available and it's effective. It's not mutually exclusive for doing other things. But the fact of the matter is, if you have high prevalence and you have people um, who are coming down with COVID, what are their options? And this early treatment um, is the best option. And, and even a lot of people you know, who are trying to you know, play politics with this have previously acknowledged that this is something that's very effective. So let's just get real here um, and let's be honest about facts. I mean, let's not try to uh, pursue partisan agendas that may have the effect of dissuading somebody from seeking a treatment that could potentially not only keep them out of the hospital, but could actually save their lives. Well said, detailed, packed with information. And he's right. And the AP screwed this one up. And by the way, a new poll out of Florida today has DeSantis leading both of his likely leading both of his highest profile challengers, one by three or four points, one by 10 points down in Florida. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Final hour here on the Guy Benson Show from New York, Fox News headquarters. Glad to be here. Glad to be filling in for Kennedy tonight on Fox Business, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. See you there on TV. Here on the radio side, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. The show is live 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Podcast on demand, no charge, including on the weekends, Bonus Benson. And this hour is sponsored in part by the Finnish Long Drink. Our buddies over there, they keep growing. People love this stuff. I do. It's great. Check it out, thelongdrink.com. That's their website. 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. With us now is Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin. He serves on the House Armed Services Committee. He also served in the U.S. Marine Corps and deployed twice to Iraq. Congressman, it's good to have you back here. Thanks for having me. It has been breathtaking watching what's happening in Afghanistan over the last week or so. The president has not had very much to say. He gave a speech a few days ago, took no questions. He spoke again yesterday on a completely separate subject, took no questions, finally sat down for an interview with George Stephanopoulos. And among other things, he had this to say, cut one, listen to the exchange. So you don't think this could have been handled, this actually could have been handled 
better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look, but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happened. So for you, that was always priced into the decision? Yes. Congressman, when you hear the president say that what we are watching right now could not have been planned or executed better, what is your response? It's a complete lie. And it continues a series of disgraceful remarks by the president. Uh, Perhaps most disgraceful being the way in which he was blaming the Afghans for the collapse in the country. Uh, We have 55,000 people that have died fighting with us, and the president basically spat on their graves. I do not understand what the heck is going on at the White House, because what I've seen is utter incompetence, and this is a dangerous situation. Um, There are multiple ways in which the withdrawal could have been handled better. For the life of me, I still don't understand why we didn't keep Bagram Airfield until we had gotten all of our people out. I mean, you have multiple runways, you have a secure perimeter, whereas now we have a single choke point at the Kabul Hamid Karzai International Airport with one runway in the middle of a city of 5 million that is now under Taliban control. We are dependent entirely upon the goodwill of the Taliban to get our people out of there. And our State Department, our Defense Department is saying we can't guarantee safe passage for the 15,000 Americans that are behind enemy lines who are now forcing into some bizarre Hunger Games, Running Man type situation to get to the airport. It's unacceptable. It's a disgrace. And the president's leadership has been completely lacking throughout this crisis. Or just non-existent, MIA. I mean, he disappears for long periods of time, days. There were days on end, apparently, where he didn't speak to any other world leader. We saw reports earlier today in the British press that Boris Johnson, the U.K. prime minister, was trying to get Biden on the phone for a day and a half, 36 hours. He couldn't reach the president. I mean, to me, that seems extremely abnormal. If the U.K. prime minister wants to talk to the president for that to take a day and a half. And then the U.S. was not sharing our details or our timeline with the Brits and other allies. These countries are completely flummoxed and angry. There are people extremely scared on the ground in Kabul and beyond Kabul. I mean, that's the other thing. There's so much focus on Kabul and the airport in the outskirts and the outer provinces of Afghanistan. It's got to be even scarier if you're someone trying to get out because, according to The Washington Post, there's no plan for those people. No plan at all. I mean, I have friends that served in Afghanistan that are private citizens now, and they're sending geo-coordinates to people they know on the ground trying to help guide them where they need to go just because there is no help coming from state and DOD. And quite frankly, I I found Secretary Austin and Chairman Milley's press conference unacceptable and completely lacking in leadership. And then Milley went out there and said, well, we did not have intelligence suggesting the country would collapse in 11 days. Well, first of all, it's been collapsing longer than that, and we had indications and warnings of what a disaster this was in the making. But second of all, that's not how intelligence works, right? The intelligence community produces an estimate of, with varying levels of precision, and that's not how war works. Your enemy exploits the opportunity you present to him, and we presented a massive opportunity. And Millie didn't need exquisite intelligence to tell him that 
this was going to be a disaster. So, well, and by the uh, way, it's the not just that. It's I mean, because the intelligence community is pushing back and saying, actually, yes, we did feed them a lot of this information. I guess it fell on deaf ears. There's a bit of a, a finger pointing match going on there. But let's just say the for the sake of this discussion, let's say the intelligence was not perfect or was lackluster or didn't really anticipate how quickly this thing has all collapsed. The administration, the White House, the president himself, the secretary of state, the national security advisor, they are still insisting their talking point to this day is that they planned for every contingency. So that would assume that one of the contingencies they would have planned for was this one, i.e. reality. And if this is what planning looks like, that is terrifying. If this is the plan, uh, it's one of the worst plans in American history that we're witnessing unfold. And I have to, you know, the National Security Advisor said that. Um, He also said, you know, don't worry about the credibility of our commitments in other regions. You know, Taiwan shouldn't be worried. Our commitment to our allies remains as strong as ever. It's sacrosanct (laughs) is the word he used. I mean, that's a joke. Come on. The the Chinese Communist Party right now is publishing op-eds exploiting this with a message directly tailored to the people of Taiwan saying, see, America is a fair-weather friend. America can't be counted on. So when the invasion happens, don't expect America to defend you. So the White House is in a weird foxhole. They are unwilling to admit any error. They are not up to this task. And for a president who campaigned in part on the fact that he was an old foreign policy hand with unique relationships with world leaders, he is failing his first major foreign policy test, and his foreign policy experience seems to be worthless. Well, because a lot of that experience is wrong and incorrect and bad. That's part of the problem here. But in that soundbite I played for you, the exchange between Stephanopoulos and Biden, which I think is incredibly damning, where Biden is saying this is basically the best we could possibly have done. What is particularly galling and not credible about that is just a few weeks ago, Congressman, the president was asked about Afghanistan and the denouement leading into September 11th. And he was like, no, things are going to be fine. The tal- there's, it is not inevitable that the Taliban is going to take over. The idea that they're just going to overrun the country, he called it, quote, highly unlikely. So you had the secretary of state saying similar things. You had the president saying that, assuring people that it wouldn't go to hell in a matter of days. Then it did go to hell in a matter of days. And Biden sort of pretending like, oh, that was kind of the plan all along. And this is the best that we possibly could have done. I mean, it's an insult. It's an insult. A complete insult and an embarrassment for the United States of America. Um, It really is troubling. And why not just say, hey, we did not anticipate it getting out of control this quickly. Clearly, our assessments were wrong. We understand that the situation is getting worse. We're going to do everything possible right now to get our people out of there. We're not going to have an arbitrary date for how long that takes, but we are going to try and get American citizens and our Afghan allies out of there as difficult as that is going to be right now. I just don't understand why they're digging in to this indefensible posture. It's too late to save faith, but you can start to save more lives. In the press conference yesterday, 
the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, was asked a question. And in cut 16, he said something that we've now heard from multiple officials that I want to explore a little bit with you, Congressman. First, let's listen. I mean, you're still saying you're focused on the airfield. These people can't get into the airfield. Well, we're going to do everything we can to uh, continue to try to uh, deconflict and and create uh, uh, passageways for them to get to the airfield. I don't have the capability to go out and and extend operations currently into uh, into uh, Kabul. And and where do you take that? I mean, how far can you extend into Kabul? You know, and uh, and and how long does it take to flow those forces in to be able to do that? So, Congressman, first of all, there could have been actual, real, non-incompetent contingency plans to secure a much broader perimeter, secure the city at least for a period of time. Once it started to look like things were deteriorating badly in the out provinces, there were a lot of different things that could have been done. Now they're stuck at this airport and you had the defense secretary of the United States of America, the most powerful nation on earth with the most powerful military on earth saying, quote, I don't have the capability to go out and extend operations into Kabul. And my question for you, Congressman, is this. There are now reports that the U.K. government is doing exactly that, that the French government is doing exactly that. They are and apparently have the capability to extend operations into Kabul and elsewhere to go get their people and get them out. Other governments are doing it. Our government is saying we don't have that capacity I mean, aside from the embarrassment and the humiliation, it also sounds like it's either a lie or really maybe more accurately, it's a choice. We can do it. We have, of course, the capability to do it. We are choosing from the very top not to do it. Right. Am I missing something? Have the capability to do it. We lack the will to do it, the political will from the top as well as the will among our class of general officers to push back against the president and understand the stakes. Uh, let the record show, before he was confirmed, I wrote an op-ed arguing against uh, Lloyd Austin's nomination to be Secretary of Defense uh, because we don't need another general at the top of the Pentagon, but also because of the role he plays in the withdrawal from Iraq. And we're seeing sort of history tragically repeat itself in terms of a fiasco that in many ways is even worse that. So we absolutely have the capability. We just lack the will to do what is necessary to protect our people right now, which is a crazy thing to say as an American. As you said, we're the most powerful country in the history of the world. At a minimum, we should be able to get our own citizens to safety. This is really an embarrassment at the highest levels. Finally, Congressman, something else that the president said on ABC News last night was that he is hopeful that in light of what he calls an existential crisis within the Taliban, that they now want to be recognized by the international community as a legitimate government. He's not sure if they do, but he's sort of hopeful. A lot of this seems to be premised on, you know, it's a disaster already. It could become a hostage situation on a huge scale. It could become extremely deadly, potentially. It sounds like the plan from the president and his team is to hope that the Taliban isn't as bad as they have been in the past and that they're going to kind of let Americans get out alive. And 
I can't help but wonder, could there be money exchanging hands? Could there be payoffs happening? Because just relying on the Taliban, I just can't believe that it has come to this. Well, there seems to be some deal struck behind the scenes, and we've been unable to get any details on it. I mean, part of the problem is Congress is not in session, and we don't have access to a classified forum in which to discuss this and conduct oversight of the Pentagon and the State Department and the White House. Um, But the president's hope is a complete fantasy. And the fact that we put ourselves in this position of relying upon the good grace of the Taliban is, is shameful. And I think there's a certain tendency among kind of the the Beltway foreign policy class. I mean, all these people are, are highly educated, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, to sort of graft these like these weird theories about how rational actors, the Taliban and other, you know, enemies on the world stage are gonna be. And anyone who has, you know, fought, you know, Salafi jihadists uh, on the ground will tell you that that is, that is just totally out of touch with reality. And so I just don't understand what theory the Biden administration is working from here. I can tell you the, the theory that the Taliban are working off of. It's a simple theory of strength versus weakness. And right now they feel like they have the upper hand. They can do whatever they want. And come September 11th this year, the Taliban are going to be standing on top of our brand new, nearly $800 million embassy doing a dance uh, because they have beaten the United States of America. But the reality is we chose defeat. We chose defeat in Afghanistan to our shame. And we are choosing to make the defeat even more humiliating. It's a choice. And I was I sort of had my breath taken away. I saw one of your colleagues in the House, Congressman Golden from Maine, was asked about the embassy being taken over by the Taliban, the U.S. embassy. And his response was a chuckle. And he said, it's just a building. I mean, what uh, joke. Yeah, uh, it's I don't even know how to respond to that, because I think we all understand the United States embassy in Kabul stands for much more than just some bricks. But I guess the spin war is currently on and there's no way to spin this. And so you end up looking awfully ridiculous. And unfortunately, the whole world is watching. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican, Wisconsin. We appreciate your service to this country. We appreciate your time on the program today. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. We'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. we got a bit of a factor follow-up for you here today. Yesterday at this time, we brought you the story of squad member Ayanna Presley, who has called for canceling rent. We have to end and cancel rent. She even introduced a bill to do so. Well, it turned out in her financial disclosures that she and her husband made thousands of dollars in rental income last year. So they want the government to cancel rent, but I guess they couldn't extend that favor to their own tenants. Had to make that sweet landlord money. Well, FoxNews.com has continued to dig into this. And guess what? There's another squad member involved. Rashida Tlaib, a gift who keeps giving, unless you're Jewish. She is also called for canceling rent, right? Out there beating the drum with her fellow squad members on this for the people. 
Well, according to the Fox investigation, the Michigan Democrats 2020 financial disclosures filed on Friday disclosed between $15,000 and $50,000 in rental income from a Detroit property. Tlaib's office did not immediately return Fox News' request for comment on this. They asked her whether she offered her tenants the opportunity to cancel their rent in 2020. Obviously not, because she made between 15 and 50 grand last year in the middle of a pandemic. Got to keep that gravy train running if you're a member of the squad while you're spouting off about national policy that would do exactly the opposite. What a fun group they are. It is an honor and a delight to be able to cover their various foibles, which seem endless. The happy hour on The Guy Benson Show continues. GuyBensonShow.com It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. More unhappy subject matter, though, as the Afghanistan meltdown continues. At the beginning of today's show, we welcomed in U.S. Senator Ben Sass, a Republican of Nebraska. We had a serious conversation about what the White House is saying and doing. I'm not sure I've heard him this angry before. Here's part of my interview with Senator Ben Sass. This is the best we can do, says the president of the United States. What do you say? Well, it's just stunningly disconnected from reality. Um, obviously, the president's team continues to urge him to treat it like a PR crisis instead of the ongoing nation-defining security crisis it actually is. Obviously, that's an unsustainable position. I don't care about the politics of all this, but they're going to regret all that for political reasons just because of how stupidly absurd it is. But here's what's actually happening on the ground over there. What's happening on the ground over there is that the French are doing gun runs to try to get their people out. The French are kicking more ass to get their people out of the country and out of harm's way than we are. The Brits, too. Uh, the, the Brits and the Americans, I, I don't, because I serve on the intelligence committee, I don't want to cross any lines here. Um, but the Brits are incredibly frustrated with America uh, and for reasons that are very, very understandable. I, I, don't, I don't think the American people understand the peril that Joe Biden has put us in. This Karzai airport has a single runway right now. That means that a single Taliban fighter with an RPG can turn this into a legitimate hostage situation by downing a plane on the tarmac. We need to expand the perimeter right now. And you have military leaders trying to be faithful uh, to their commander in chief, but not fighting him nearly hard enough. The, the bunker silo that the White House staff has tried to put the president in and keep him from hearing the military advice that he needs right now has the military talking as if we lack the capacity to expand the perimeter. Oh, I mean, they're what saying we lack is the will. Yeah, they're saying it outright. In fact, let's play it. It cuts 16. And again, we'll juxtapose what you just said about the French government, what they're doing. We won't make you comment on what the Brits are doing, but there are reports that they are sending teams out like the French to make sure that their people are brought in safely. What about the United States? Well, the defense secretary yesterday said this. I mean, you're still saying you're focused on the airfield. These people can't get into the airfield. Well, we're going to do everything we can to uh, continue to try to uh, de-conflict and and create... uh, uh, passageways for them to get to the airfield. I don't have the capability to go out and, and extend operations currently into, uh, into uh, Kabul. And, and where do you take that? I mean, how far can you extend into Kabul, you know, and, uh, and, and how long does it take to flow those forces in to be able to do that? He says that this is the 
defense secretary of the United States of America saying that we don't have the capacity to go out and do what the French are currently doing, as you point out, Senator, that is their answer. We don't have the capacity to do it, which I think on its face is completely ridiculous. It is completely ridiculous. It's a false statement. Uh, We need military leaders to stop acting like politicians and to tell the truth and then let political officials who are elected be held accountable for the policy choices they make. But to, to claim that we don't have the capacity is simply not true. And the moral imperative in this moment, when we've got uh, thousands and thousands of Americans still well beyond the airport, well beyond the wire, who can't get there. And we have an administration, we have a State Department sending notices out to Americans in Kabul saying, we cannot guarantee your safety getting here, but the Taliban has said you'll be getting free access to the airport. Trusting the Taliban uh, to get access to the airport is like trusting Hitler to give access to the beaches of Dunkirk. This is insane. And the American military needs to be directed. They need to be given the power and the authority to either expand the perimeter around Karzai Airport right now, past these, past and through these Taliban checkpoints that are keeping people from being able to get to the airport, or we need to retake Bagram Air Force Base. This is one of the great blunders in all of U.S. history. My full discussion with U.S. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. And, of course, on the free podcast, the entire show, every day, on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, an elaborate dinner in New York last night, and a fun gym interaction with a colleague. We'll get to that and Curious Christine straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Looking forward to seeing you tonight on Kennedy, Fox Business, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm sitting in. So last night I bumped into a few people who work on the Gutfeld Show. And I was on the panel on Tuesday night. This is pretty cool. It was the highest rated show in the history of Gutfeld, which has only been around for a few months at this point, but it was their top rated show. Over 2 million people watching. I think it was 2.1 million and change. They, if I recall correctly, pulled a 0.7 rating in the demo at that time, the 11 p.m. hour at night. Pretty impressive. And they've been beating Kimmel. They've been beating Fallon. They've been beating a lot of the big late night shows. They haven't been able to get Colbert on CBS until Tuesday night in the demo, which happened to be the show that I was on. So the first time I was on Gutfeld, and I did remind them of this, the first time I was on Gutfeld, At that time, it turned out to be their highest rated show to date. And now my second time out, they set a new record and beat Colbert. And as I also told them, I'm sure that had nothing to do with the news cycle and having the guy who killed bin Laden on the panel. America was tuned in for this guy. They needed my takes. Still very cool to be on that show. Kind of momentous, breaking through, beating Colbert, sweeping basically the late night rating wars for the first time Tuesday night with millions of you guys watching. So thank you for that. And congratulations to Greg and Kat and their whole team. And I bumped into them on the street when I was walking to dinner last night at one of the best restaurants in the country. And it has been for years. This is not somewhere that I can typically go or can even get a reservation. It's one of these places you have to book forever. And it's impressive when you have that staying power. It's called La Bernadette. 
Chef Eric Repair, extremely well-regarded. And a friend of mine had made reservations, and he said, hey, he's got an inn. He knows all these places. He can get in wherever. In fact, at one point when we were ordering, the waiter, they all knew him. I was like, oh, yes, you're regular, sir. I would love to have a regular order at La Bernadette. That would be awfully great to get to that point in life. But I was just along for the ride. I'll talk more about that in a second. But I knew it was going to be a very rich, elaborate meal. And so I've been going to the gym at the hotel. I did an extra long Peloton ride yesterday. It was miserable, but it was in preparation for this meal. So it felt less miserable than it usually would. The previous day I was at the gym and I walked in and often this hotel gym, which I love, is empty. That's my preference. But there was one other guy in it. He was on the elliptical, really going fast. And I recognized, oh, it's Trace Gallagher, my Fox News colleague. So we made eye contact. I said, hi, Trace. Like, hey, guy, how's it going? He then proceeds to have this conversation with me. And I, I am not the least bit mad about it, but he was really going at an impressive clip on this elliptical machine while conducting a conversation. Like the man's cardiovascular health must be amazing because I'm at that point, I'm huffing and puffing. I don't want to make eye contact with anyone. I don't want, like, if you ask me something, I might like grunt a word at you. I'm not having a conversation, but he was. So I was not starting my ride because I knew if I got into my ride and we were doing that awkward thing because there's all mirrors around the gym. We weren't looking at each other, but we were still making eye contact through like three mirrors. And we were talking about Fox and the news cycle and all this stuff. Such a nice guy. And we had a nice conversation. He's uh, he's in New York filling in for John Roberts this week. I think he's doing, he told me, Gutfeld. He'll be on the panel next week at some point. Nice guy. He's usually based out in L.A. I was, let me just like slow clap for Trace Gallagher and his degree of being in shape because I am impressed and very, very friendly. And then I got down to business, got on the bike, the conversation ended. And then I sort of was like keeping up appearances because he was still in the gym. And then he waved goodbye. He took off. I was like, okay, now I can just fully be miserable and just, you know, groaning and all this. I just, I do it because I have to, not because I like it. But Trace seems to actually like it. Anyway, the point is I was doing all of this in advance of this very special dinner where my friend was able to get a reservation at Laverna Den Lake with a few days' notice, which is wild. And I may have mentioned him on the air before. His name is Zhang Toy. Zhang, Z-A-N-G-T-O-I. You can look him up. He is a high-end fashion designer in New York. I met him when I was on my book tour with Mary Catherine back in 2015. He is from Malaysia. He's a first-generation immigrant. He is flamboyantly gay. He wears what he calls a mini kilt, if you can picture that, with like Swarovski crystals on it. He's got all this high-end clientele. So what person of color, immigrant, gay, and just a total right-winger. He loves Fox. He loves Trump. He knows the Trumps. I think Ivanka Trump has modeled in some of his shows. He does like the full thing, New York fashion shows, all this stuff. Like real famous people show up. I've been at some of these fashion shows. He's invited me and you look around, it's like actors and actresses and musicians and that sort of thing. And then me and some Fox News people, like I bumped into Bill Hemmer at one of these things. Don Jr. and Kimberly, they were at one of these things. So it is a, it's an eclectic array of people. And Zhang is one, totally one of a kind. 
and his American dream. He loves this country so much because he grew up living above his parents' grocery store with many siblings. And he came to this country and now has like a standing reservation at Laburna Den. That is amazing. And his gratitude for this country is boundless. So the meal was amazing, as it always is. I've, I say always. I've eaten there twice. Also, the meal should be that good for that price. My goodness. Zhang insisted on paying. He's like, you'll get it next time. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, next time we're back here together at Laburna Den, the old LB. Uh, but he's extremely generous. The conversation was my favorite part. It was great to catch up with him. I posted, if you're a foodie or if you're curious to know what Zhang looks like, I posted every course of food on my Instagram story. Guy P. Benson. That'll be active for the next few hours if you want to go check it out. And just in case you're judging me, first of all, feel free to judge me, but not all of the photos were of my courses. I did not eat all of this food. I just took pictures of everything that showed up at the table. It, it's like art. And it is delicious. And I know that producer Christine has questions. Curious Christine, what are you curious about? It was just a dinner, a simple dinner between two friends. A simple dinner? I'm looking <laughs> at the pictures right now, and I don't even know what you ate. I think I see a macaroni. There was Maybe? one. There was one pasta dish that was, I want to say, like a linguine with sea urchin. Wow. It was very, very good. The He had these little beautiful pieces of like toast with like the highest end tuna and then uni or sea urchin on that. Those were amazing. I think there's something like eight or nine photos. The dessert, the last dessert is they called it a donut. I'm not a donut person, so I didn't order it. But the French waiter was like, you must get this. And so Zhang ordered it. I was like, yeah, maybe I'll have a bite. Zhang's like, you've got to try it. As soon as he got it and he cut into it, I said, oh, yeah, that is something very special. That is not a donut. And it was awesome. Every single thing, they put so much thought into it. And again, this is not a place that I would go on a regular basis ever. I mean, I went there once before when I was launching my book for a celebratory dinner with one of my dear friends, Mary Catherine Hamm, my co-author. We split the wine pairing because it was so expensive and also she was pregnant so she couldn't drink very much so the plan that we came up with was she wanted to taste the pairings so the wine would come with each course we did the full tasting menu that night which is like 12 courses we did not do that last night and they bring wine so she would have the first little sip from each glass and taste it with the food then I would drink the glass of wine it was a great deal for me anyway I just don't want people to think like this is my normal Wednesday night in the city. And I think we talked about it on Tuesday night. I did nothing. I ordered in some like relatively cheap Chinese food and watched baseball and family feud and went to bed. Last night was a little different. It was a little bit more of a night on the town. And I felt pretty excited about it. Did you, so did you do courses? I'm confused. Because yes. I know that place has like a tasting. Yeah, so, so there's there's a tasting menu option where you get, I want to say, 10 to 12 courses. We didn't do that. That's a whole production and much more expensive. Their normal menu is sort of spread across two pages where they have a column of cold appetizers 
a column of warm appetizers, I believe, and then a column of main courses. And then later comes a dessert course. So you select one of each, and then you get the dessert menu. So I ended up having a glass of champagne and then two glasses of wine that the sommelier recommended would go well with my various things that I ordered. And it was amazing. It was so fun. And I am willing to bet we were probably the only people in that whole restaurant having the conversations that we were and talking as much as we were about politics and Fox. This is a very upscale, I would say, left-leaning New York crowd. But not us. Although you should never judge a book by its cover because you would look at Zhang and know his gig and be like, there is no way this guy's anything other than a lefty, but he is most certainly not. He actually appeared on The Real Housewives of New York, and I believe season one or season two. So I'm kind of fangirling out here that you're actually friends with him. Wait, did you not meet him? He came to the wedding. He was at our wedding. So I saw him at your wedding. I didn't, you know, go up to him. He was in the mini kilt. He was the only person wearing the mini kilt. I I did see him there. So I I have to say one thing. This restaurant looks amazing. Um, But I do go to a place, Guy, that I have a regular order. I just want you to know. And that place is called Domino's. I was going to say. It's like, hi, it's Cookie. They're like, oh, Cookie, do you want the regular pineapple on your pizza? We'll have it straight to you. Hashtag Italian. <laughs> well, you said it's not you. Not often you can go to a place. That I am a regular. Not all the time, but well, I guess that would be a regular. But they they know they know me, and they, and they I, know what. And let's be honest, the Domino's people do not know you or your regular order. But there is absolutely at least one bartender who knows your order. You walk in, and they're already pouring the Cosmo. I would say most of the restaurants that Bobby and I go to, they know that I want a Cosmo. I mean, I know this. They deliver it with the water to start the meal. It might come as a surprise, but most of the restaurants that we go to that are we're regulars, I mean, we walk in and they're like, Christine, Bobby, because <laughs> I know about their families, you know, uh, what, what they're doing the next day. Oh, yeah. it, it's a and then, and then you have, you, you chug your. Cosmo and they ask you if you'd like another and then often you say yes but occasionally you say something really classy and reserved like no I'm going to hold off I'm trying to cut back this week on the hooch (laughs) I don't know what's wrong with the term hooch (laughs) it's just you like it I guess it applies tonight I will not be drinking until after 9 p.m. Eastern because I'm going to be on the air filling in for Kennedy starting at 8 Eastern Fox Business Network obviously a lot going on Hope to see you there. Back right here on the radio tomorrow. Same time, same place. Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at Show.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.